And mm-hmm. sometimes you'll see that where a patient will mark that they are perfectly fine with, you know, all their sex hormones and, and everything. And then when we start getting blood sugar under control or improving circulation or whatever it is, and then all of a sudden they come in and they're like, holy cow, what'd you do? Like, I'm performing way better now. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even know that was a problem for you, but I'm happy for you. <laughs> following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up everyone and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. Hello. The Diabuddies are back. That is right. And today is the first day that we'll be recording, and we're not together. Sad day. Unfortunately. Garrett moved up to the Great White North, up to Wisconsin. Mm-hmm, Milwaukee. And so, therefore, the Dia Buddies aren't together, but we're always in one another's heart. Oh, yeah. That was so corny. Oh, my gosh. Why <laughs> did I just say that? <laughs> but, yes, yeah. Yeah, I moved up to Wisconsin. Uh, Great, you were or I was very grateful for your help in my move up here um, and driving my car up as I drove a, a U-Haul truck, um, you know, just last week. And so it's definitely going to be different Not after living with one another for like three and a half years or whatever it was, but all good things must come to an end. So. Yep. But I'm glad we get to keep connected with this podcast. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be different. And so this is therefore also the first time we're going to be recording differently before Mm -hmm. we were in the same room with one another with really nice mics. Now, Grady, you got a really nice mic (laughs) and I, (laughs) and I currently just have my, my Apple headphones. So hopefully everyone can hear me well. I think, I think it'll work for a little bit until I get my own mic, but so um so yeah so let us know give us some feedback on, on the quality if you prefer one versus the other and we'll uh we'll try to comply i guess yeah all right so let's get things kicked off today we're going to be talking about dysglycemia and also blood sugar's effect on the brain and kind of getting into that alzheimer's that we were talking about a few podcasts ago mm-hmm. so we to start it off dysglycemia what is dysglycemia I don't know. It's just basically a broad term that refers to both low blood sugar and high blood sugar. So, Mm. you know, blood sugar instability, really. And so it's really important to recognize what that means for everybody because we typically think about this in regards to purely diabetics. So whether that's type 2 or type 1 diabetics. But really, dysglycemia can happen when you're not a diabetic. I mean, even when, so we have pre-diabetes, but even before that, we have, I have people coming in my clinic with um, blood sugar problems all over the place. So it's important to recognize what symptoms come along with blood sugar instability, those highs and those lows. Even as a non-diabetic, you can have symptoms of higher low blood sugar, but I thought that was the whole point of diabetes. That's crazy. Yep. Yeah. So... These blood sugar instabilities, these things that happen, don't just happen overnight. It's just not like, boom, you have diabetes. It's mm-hmm. a slow building process. And it's what's kind of been described to me by some of my mentors is it's a spectrum. So mm-hmm. you get so far along and now clinically we can diagnose you as diabetic. But this problem has mm-hmm. been building for a long time. It doesn't just happen okay. like that. So recognizing those symptoms before you get to that point is really important because then identifying 
that helps you stop it in its tracks and doesn't lead to those severe problems that we've talked about. So mm-hmm. what does low blood sugar look like? I know what it feels like for me. Yeah. But. Yep. And, and these symptoms are similar to what diabetics experience. So the sweet cravings through the day, cause your body's craving that sugar that is lacking or being hangry in between meals. So, you know, being irritable um, when you haven't had a meal in a long time or even just between regular meals if you uh, blood sugar is dropping low. So, you know, the Snickers commercial is right on top of that. All right. And, and then also if you're depending on coffee to get going in the morning uh, or to keep going um, is another sign that you're lacking that sugar that your body needs. So that's a low blood sugar sign. You know, that's a low blood sugar sign. Okay. Right? Also, if you're getting lightheaded in between meals, um, that's another sign that your blood sugar is too low. Mm. Um, Also, if eating a meal relieves your fatigue. So eating shouldn't really change your energy levels. You should eat and feel satisfied. You shouldn't eat and feel better, and you shouldn't eat and feel worse. It should just be, hey, I'm satisfied, and now I can go on and do my task for the day. Which is, that's such a crazy thought because I think everyone in the country, maybe even the world, they think, oh, you know, you eat, you should be happy. You should be Mm -hmm. satisfied. You know, like, like, well, satisfied is what you should feel. But like, you know, if you feel good, you're like, oh man, I just feel so much better. Like that just feels like it should be a natural response. Even with like, you you taste good food, you eat good Mm -hmm. food. Why would you not feel good? Yeah. It's just so crazy. Or even some people have the opposite reaction. They're almost afraid to eat because they know they're going to feel bad afterwards or they wow. have that expectation. Mm-hmm. I definitely so, know people that way. Yeah. Yep. Um, also, if you're feeling shaky or jittery or have those tremors um, in between meals, that's a sign of low blood sugar. Those nerves are going crazy because they need that sugar. Also, having poor memory in between meals. We're going to be talking a lot about brain today. So, you know, poor memory and being forgetful in between meals is a strong sign of low blood sugar. And also uh, having blurry vision, your, your vision starts to blur a little bit, especially when it comes along with these other symptoms that we talked about. That's when you're like, okay, we need to eat something because something's Mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. Also, if you're having trouble going to sleep or staying asleep, that can often be a component of blood sugar regulation because of its effect on the adrenals and your circadian rhythm. So if you're having trouble with sleep, it's not always the case, but sometimes it's a simple fact of controlling and maintaining your blood sugar and that helping your sleep. Because mm. oftentimes when you wake up in the middle of the night, it's because your blood sugar is actually dropping. And so your body reacts by kicking out cortisol and adrenaline to bring it back up. And so obviously you're going to wake up because of that. Mm. I was going to say, I remember one of the first, when I was first diagnosed with diabetes in, in 2007, like a week, once I got out of the hospital, maybe it was like two weeks later, we had a family trip that we went to the beach. You're talking about blurry, blurry vision yeah. um, earlier. And I remember being in the ocean. You know, I didn't have a pump at this time. I was just using shots. And I was in the ocean. And, and um, I was just doing my own thing. And all of a sudden, like, everything started going white. And I was like, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This, this isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on. This is a new thing for me. And I kind of, like, swam to shore. And I was like... <laughs> Cause I was in the water and as I was like falling on the sand, like really starting to feel like low blood sugar symptoms, not able to see, I fell and I was like, mom, check my blood sugar. I don't know what's going on. And I was like 18. Holy cow. <laughs> and that was the lowest I think I've ever been. And my mom was just shoving Teddy Grahams down my throat. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cause that was like the go-to for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that blurry vision is crazy that, you know, a lot of people can't get that. And it can be, that low blood sugar or sometimes even a high blood sugar sign sometimes mm-hmm. too. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. That's that's like one of those signs for me where when I start seeing the light is when I'm like, oh crap, I really gotta I really gotta do something now. 
Cause you know, sometimes you get, you start feeling low blood sugar, you feel those different symptoms and you're like, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, it's not that bad yet. I can, you know, finish whatever I'm doing or right. I can wait a little bit longer. I can finish this Netflix episode. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then when you start, you know, seeing those white dots in your vision, you're like, nope, I got to go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. Anyways. Yeah. So on the flip side of things, we have high blood sugar symptoms. So symptoms of high blood sugar are things like fatigue after meals. So if you're eating and you feel more tired after the meal, it's likely a high blood sugar problem. And that's because of your liver trying to convert that excess sugar into fat. And that process takes a lot of energy, a lot of ATP. And so if it's having to do that, you're expending a lot of ATP and therefore you get tired after a meal. So it's Hmm. not that um, tryptophan in the turkey. It's your blood sugar. Not going to rant about it again. Um, another symptom is craving sweets. So those cells aren't getting the sugar and therefore they're screaming for sugar because it's not getting into the cell. And so that's why you still crave sweets, even though your sugar is high. And then the more common symptoms that we see is frequent urination. So your body's trying to flush all that excess sugar out. So it's taking all the water in your body and using it to flush all that excess sugar out of your body. So that's why you urinate more frequently. And that's also why you typically get much more thirsty um, as a result too. So you're drinking lots of water and you're going to be peeing a lot of it out too. So some people mistake this frequent urination with drinking lots of water because they are drinking lots of water. But this is kind of a cycle that you get into because the blood sugar is high. So don't take that for granted just because you think you're drinking lots of water. You should be peeing out lots of water. You know, if you're having some of these other symptoms, this may be something you want to check out. Yeah, I remember, you know, that's kind of, I don't think we specifically have talked about diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, But I remember, you know, when I was first diagnosed and going into diabetic ketoacidosis, it's such a common thing to think you're going to the bathroom a lot while you're obviously drinking a lot of water. Like, Mm -hmm. Almost swore, almost swore <laughs> for the first time. Didn't caught myself. Uh, Proud of you. But it, it, yeah, I know me too. For anybody that that knows me personally, knows that I I, I enjoy a good swear once in a while. <laughs> um, but re- anyways, um, you know, when I was first diagnosed, I re- literally remember people saying like, "Of course you're going to the bathroom a lot. Stop drinking water. Stop drinking mm-hmm. soda." Like, and you just think it's it makes sense, and so you ignore the other symptoms. Yeah. Um, but anyways, that's, it's kind of a side tangent about diabetic ketoacidosis. Cause that's part of that is the hyperglycemia factor, which, you know, you're talking about those symptoms regardless of diabetic ketoacidosis. Mm-hmm. So, yep. So it's really important to recognize those symptoms. Like I've said, because you don't necessarily have to be diabetic to be experiencing these things. And if you're experiencing these things, then you likely have blood sugar instability and it's, actually extremely common that I see in my practice that a lot of people come into my practice, even if, you know, things related to blood sugar, isn't their primary complaint, but something like, you know, thyroid, I see a lot of times with thyroid that blood sugar instability is at least a player in why they're having trouble with their thyroid. Um, Sometimes it's a major role. Sometimes it's at least a game, uh, you know, a player in the game, and we have to get that under control. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to get the results that they want. Hmm. Uh, it's crazy how common it is because almost every patient, I'm going to be looking at things related to blood sugar because it's so vital for so many different things. And it plays a role in a lot of different diseases. So if they have blood sugar problems, that's something that's very foundational that we need to correct right away. Otherwise, we're going to have a hard time healing and repairing whatever, you know, condition that they have. That's a very common, you know, school of thought in the functional medicine world. Like, obviously, you're a chiropractor, you know, you deal with a lot of things and, you know, you're treating the body holistically. Um, And as you are working through these problems, it's, you know, it's a very common thought to like, all right, we got to get blood sugar under control. That is a base uh, when it comes to treating a person from 
what really causes that disease or disease, you know? Um, so I, th- I just wanted to point out the fact that it's so foundational and so many schools of thought in the functional medicine world and in the functional health world or whatever buzzword you want to use. I don't think functional medicine yeah. is a buzzword anymore, but, uh, you know, it's, it is very foundational. So that's reassuring to hear that you see that in your practice as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the reason why it's so foundational is because it can add so much stress to the body. Mm. So we see that a lot of times with adrenal problems because, you know, like we said before, adrenals are the scapegoat. They get blamed for everything. For sure. And they get blamed for everything because they're that stress handling gland. So if something is stressing the body out, the adrenals have to pick up the slack. And eventually they can't pick up the slack anymore or they're overreacting, you know, whatever the scenario is. And so they get blamed. So we have to figure out what, what we can do to take the stress off those adrenal glands. And a lot of times it's blood sugar. Simply by taking the blood sugar under control, we can help those adrenals kind of catch up and balance themselves out. And it's crazy how much that plays a role in things. You know, stress, it comes in many different forms. It, you know, emotional stress, physical stress, and chemical stress. And some of those things we can't do very much about. We don't have much control over that, like a family member passing away or getting fired from a job or a divorce. Some, some of those things we don't have a lot of control over, but blood sugar we do. And so if we can regulate and get that blood sugar back under control, that can take a large amount of stress off your adrenal glands, off your body, and allow your body to adapt to those stresses that you can't necessarily avoid. You can now adapt to those better because you don't have as much stress from other things like blood sugar. So I think it's Mm. an important thing to help your body heal and repair just by getting your blood sugar under control. Wow. And, you know, that's just one of a few systems that it can affect. You know, we've talked about the brain being affected by blood sugar. We've talked about the liver being affected by blood sugar. We talked about the heart, you know, your circulation, the kidneys, the eyes, your nerves. And something we haven't necessarily talked about yet, which is sex hormones. Your sex hormones Mm. can be very significantly impacted by blood sugar. And if you have a lot of high blood sugars, a lot of times with males with low libido, blood sugar is a big aspect that they need to get under control in order to get that libido back and get, you know, the performance back in the bed. Mm. Is that really in your practice? I'm not sure how much you've actually dealt with that, but I mean, I feel like that'd be pretty big motivational factor for, you know, men with, or women with those issues. It's like, Hey, you know, sure you enjoy that activity mm-hmm. let's get your blood sugar under control <laughs> yep it's it's very interesting because sometimes you know i have intake forms that i have my patients fill out when they come in and all these questions on these different systems including the sex hormones are on there and mm-hmm. sometimes you'll see that where a patient will mark that they are perfectly fine with you know all their sex hormones and, and everything And then when we start getting blood sugar under control or improving circulation or whatever it is, and then all of a sudden they come in and they're like, holy cow, what'd you do? Like, I'm performing way better now. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even know that was a problem for you, but I'm happy for you. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah. That's funny. You know, all all those systems are why it's so important for you to to take care of your blood sugar because if your Mm -hmm. blood sugar is out of control all those systems are suffering and if all those systems are suffering your health and your long-term health is going to suffer you know how important is your brain pretty darn important Mm -hmm. and if you have a job that requires you to perform at a high level you need that brain function so taking care of your body is important not even performing at a high function i think even you know, we all just need our brain, know. you know, like um, when it comes to things like more and more people are hearing the word brain fog and it's not just this fogginess in your brain. It's it can even be trouble recalling words and getting mm-hmm. sentences out. And regardless of who you are, that is an important part of just even daily living, you know, and if you can't get your words out, 
that is an extremely like right now that is extremely impactful part of somebody's life um, and i think the brain and blood sugar connection is crazy important and something that if you aren't diabetic you should know about and if you are diabetic you should know knew about it yesterday mm-hmm. like it is it's just crazy how important um this is and so we've mentioned in the past that alzheimer's which is a major brain disorder um, is now being called type three diabetes with some people. So I think keeping a big picture at first, when we start talking about the brain is that, and by the way, for everyone listening, I'm going to try my best to not be as technical, but, uh, Dr. Grady and I are, are pretty technical guys. Um, and we're going to be, we're going to continue to be as lighthearted with, um, this conversation as possible, but forewarned might be a little dense for these next couple of minutes. I'm okay. But, with it. Um, anyways so alzheimer's disease for anyone who doesn't know you know is um, the progressive degeneration and destruction of centers in the brain um, particularly with memory but then associated with other functions of the brain as well and from a molecular level has to deal with the buildup of amyloid beta plaques and so for anyone not in the health field or never really heard of that, is it's just a protein. Think about it as a protein in your brain. That's debris that needs to be cleared out. And it's just kind of been associated that it's really clear with this and some other proteins, tau proteins or whatever. When there's a buildup of these proteins, it's very clear that somebody has Alzheimer's. So it's not just clinical data that somebody can be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but it can't like it can be observed in somebody's brain physically. Now, the connection between Alzheimer's and diabetes isn't a question right now of is it, but how. There's plenty of studies. Um, there was one that I found that I know we'll put in the show notes. Um, it was a longitudinal cohort study, which just means that it's a specific group of people. But it was this nine-year study of 824 people older than the age of 55. And it showed a risk of developing Alzheimer's disease um, was higher by 65% if you had diabetes compared to those who weren't diabetic. So right off the bat, if you have diabetes, you are at increased risk for having Alzheimer's. Like it does. That's a pretty big percentage. Yeah. That's (laughs) That's nothing to mess around with. And the study didn't look at, you know, how well controlled it was or anything like that, but it was just very clear. A large amount of people, brains will be damaged just being diabetic, which is kind of almost a scary um, thought to tell. Or even if your family doesn't know and you're diabetic, you know, it's like, do I, do I want to tell them? You know, they don't, I don't want them to worry about my brain. I've got, I got enough troubles worrying about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but additionally, in another study um, that was conducted through uh, the Mayo Clinic's register, uh, looking at both clinical data as well as um, data from the morgue or autopsy data, Um, suggested diabetes or just glucose intolerance. So, you know, kind of that just dysglycemia description, which you gave us not too long ago, um, might be present in up to 80% of patients with Alzheimer's. So at this data that they looked at, at the Mayo Clinic, up to 80% of people with Alzheimer's had some kind of glucose intolerance or diabetes itself. Um, And that was through different ways of looking at it. that's a lot right there. I know. Um, and so, like I said, it's not really a question and cause there's plenty of other data out there too. I know on top of those two studies, um, we, we also are going to link, um, a really good review study that looks at a whole bunch of different data. Um, but it's not so much, is it connected Alzheimer's and diabetes, but how, and really there's two schools of thoughts, um, of those being connected. Um, And even before then, it's very clear, even if you're not diabetic, um, that the psychomotor efficiency can be affected when you have hyperinsulinemia or high blood sugar. Your psychomotor skills, your attention, your learning, your memory, your mental flexibility, your speed, your executive function, all the parts of your brain that need to work are very clearly affected to your blood sugar. And how this is thought is either through the vascular damage that blood sugar can do to the body and therefore the brain as well, or insulin itself. And the thought, if it was vascular, 
is that Dr. Grady, you mentioned before how sugar is very sticky, you know, mm-hmm. and um, when it comes to diabetes, it's thought, not thought, it is known to be a microvascular disease, meaning it affects your heart, it affects all these other things at the micro or small vessel level. And when it damages these vessels, these vessels are also in the brain and it can affect cerebral circulation and cause minor or silent ischemic events in the brain. And that just essentially means it would affect the blood flow and therefore the lack or just the presence of oxygen to the brain causing atrophy or damage. So that being said, it could be very clear on how how diabetes and blood sugar can affect the brain. Mm -hmm. If it's a vascular disease, which it is, your brain is very vascular. It requires a lot of blood and oxygen. Definitely, yeah. Your brain needs three primary things. It needs oxygen, so that's your blood flow. It needs glucose, and it needs activation. Mm-hmm. So those are your three primary things that it needs. So if you're not getting that oxygen, it's going to suffer big time. When you mean activation, you mean just like stimulation, right? Yeah, movement, stimulation, things like that. Gotcha. Yeah, no, those three things are important. So with and needing glucose and there being a glucose intolerance of some kind or dysglycemia. And then on top of that, that affecting the circulation, therefore affecting the oxygen, it's very clear that of course it's going to affect your brain. Mm-hmm. But the other thought, you know, that we're going to kind of dive into a little more now is the role of insulin and insulin action slash resistance and how it affects brain tissue. So um, like I said, it's thought to be called type three diabetes because, you know, somewhere along this century, they really connected um, blood sugar and insulin with, and because insulin is so important in diabetes, insulin and Alzheimer's, they call it type 3 diabetes. We're starting to. And taking a second to take a step back, that your brain is protected by something called the blood brain barrier. And it's exactly what it sounds like it is a barrier. Its sole function is to be selective and what things can go in and go out of the brain or can't go in rather. And the blood brain barrier, when it comes to insulin, insulin itself is actually too big to freely cross into the brain. How insulin gets into the brain is that it needs a specific transport mechanism or just it needs another way of getting into it. It uses other proteins and uses other machinery to allow insulin to be traveled into the brain. And how that is activated is through insulin receptors. So for insulin to get in the brain, it needs to be, it needs to activate insulin receptors and therefore allow insulin in the brain. So it's almost like you need more insulin to allow insulin into the brain, if that makes sense. So that by kind of almost default can set you up or rather make you more sensitive. And therefore you need to be careful with how much insulin is in your body and your brain because mm-hmm. Because you, it's very. It needs a large amount or a larger amount than other places. Because it needs itself to get it. And by the way, I wanted to say this earlier. Um, by no means am I an expert in Alzheimer's disease. I am a simple man, <laughs> and um, I'm four months away from graduating with uh, my doctorate of being a chiropractor, which I'm very excited about. And I'm about a year away from getting my master's as well. Um, so no way am I a PhD, am I an expert in Alzheimer's, but, uh, it's like I said, this is all published data. So anyways, the, these transport systems, like I said, require insulin. Um, but because it's an insulin receptor, we've already talked about type two diabetes and the insulin resistant mechanism. You know, if you have too much insulin there, you're knocking on the door. Eventually the door is going to just stop working. Right. Mm-hmm. So that automatically, if that's already happening in the rest of your body, that's can still be happening towards your brain as well. And so your body can also then start when you have too much of a hormone, the natural response is to actually downregulate the amount of insulin receptors. And what I'm, what I'm saying here is almost in a way it's, it's paradoxical. It seems like, well, you just said this, you just said that there would be too much insulin. Now there's not going to be too much insulin. Well, that's kind of the, the problem <laughs> in understanding how insulin affects the brain. So what I'm pointing out here 
is that insulin and insulin receptors are just as susceptible to insulin resistance in the brain as it is to the rest of the body. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes much more sense. Okay. So the, if there was that insulin resistance and you downregulate the, the amount of insulin uh, or insulin receptors, in theory should eventually downregulate the amount of insulin, but because of how much insulin is in the body, that might not happen. Okay. So that's part of the problem. Now, part of the problem when it comes to Alzheimer's and, and diabetes is that we're going to skip right now that insulin is already in the brain. And when you have too much insulin in the brain, you're going to need to get rid of it at some point. And how you get rid of that insulin that's already in the brain is through an enzyme, which is just a protein that makes reactions happen faster. It's a, called an insulin-degrading enzyme. And the reason why this is problematic when you have too much insulin is that this insulin-degrading enzyme is actually part of the same pathway at clearing amyloid plaques that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so so the, the plaques that are the problem in Alzheimer's are not being cleared out because of insulin being cleared out by the same enzyme. Right. Yeah. So because the same enzyme is used in both pathways, it's almost, think about it this way. If you only had 50 enzymes or 50 trucks, no, 50 things in a, in a utility line, you know, you're, you're at a workshop. You only have 50 workers, but they, to, for those workers to work, they need supplies, right? Mm -hmm. And, but you have the option or you're supposed to balance the supplies that's coming from one side, your right side and your left side, or the insulin or the amyloid plaques. And if you have a lot of insulin, those workers are going to start using the supplies that where there's more supplies on the insulin side and the body will prioritizing degrading the insulin over the amyloid plaques. Mm. And so in this, in essence, then the amyloid plaques are left to pile up and that supplies that's on the other side. Uh, I'm saying left and right, but <laughs> it's a podcast. Yeah, it does. <laughs> you guys can't see where my hands are. Uh, but you know, it'll be left. The supplies on one side will be left to build up if you're prioritizing the other supplies or the insulin in this case. So it's thought to be part of the pathway or potential proposed pathway of how insulin can be related to the buildup of amyloid plaques is that this insulin degrading enzyme is then taking up by too much insulin. Now, even more curious is this, is that glucose, which we think is the central dogma of diabetes is you have glucose in your blood, you use insulin, and that puts the glucose into the cell. And we've already kind of talked about how that's really only true for one cell type or, you know, three cell types in one transporter. So just as a recap, you know, we have these transporters, GLUT3 transporter, which allows glucose into the cells of your brain, does not need insulin. Neither does GLUT1, which is for the blood-brain barrier. And that would allow glucose into the blood-brain barrier, into those cells. That doesn't need insulin. So we think insulin is used everywhere to get glucose in the brain. In reality, the brain does not need insulin for glucose to get in there. And to add the curiosity onto it is that our brain is the primary organ that consumes glucose. Mm -hmm. It's only about 2% of our body weight, but it consumes about 20% of our body's glucose. Wow. So it's your body and your brain is saying, I don't care what is going on. I'm getting glucose. Yep. Nope. I don't care how much you're going to fight, kick or scream. I'm not turning this car around. <laughs> this glucose is going in. Yep. <laughs> and so, so the brain needs glucose so much so that it's insulin independent to get it. But yet we have these curious thoughts of, and data that says, okay, insulin is used to degrade um, or insulin can be interrupting the de degradation of the amyloid plaques. Same time, insulin's too big to cross the blood-brain barrier. And I've even seen Grady um, data that says, or some people might suggest, 
that the brain makes its own insulin. Now, I'm not saying it does, but it's an interesting thought when that data is out there too. Yeah, that would be crazy. I remember the, when I was talking to a neurologist who told me that and oh, you know, really? sh- showed me the studies. I was, as a diabetic, you, you know, we're proud owners of, of broken pancreases, <laughs> which I hate that statement so much. Yeah. And you, you're telling me there's another place in my body that might make insulin? Yeah. What are you talking about? My whole world is upside down. Yeah. Now I'm like, come on, brain, pick up the slack. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. So anyways, again, I'm not saying it is. That, that is confirmed because there, there's just some data that suggests that. Um, but it's just so curious on how the brain requires insulin or requires glucose and how insulin is involved in the story is very unclear mm-hmm. And when it comes down to it. But it is very clear that glucose in general is related to Alzheimer's and yeah. related to brain health. Mm-hmm. And you can, like you said, when you start fixing the blood sugar in people, it can start then to change how their body works. And you can, things like brain fog and other cognitive function can get a whole lot better once their glucose is under control. Yeah. And I think it's a great point how it's so confusing, how it's actually related. But me as a clinician, the details and the research is cool and fun to read and look at. <laughs> Well, mm. at the end of the day, the phenomenon is what we need to worry about. Right. Seeing the correlation between people who have blood sugar dysregulation problems ending up with Alzheimer's is the important aspect. We need right. to, you know, focus on getting your blood sugar good, so that way we don't have to worry about the the brain function towards the end mm-hmm. of life. Right. No, I I totally agree with you, and yet I'm about to talk more minutia. <laughs> like i said it's fun to talk about (laughs) no but no absolutely when it comes you know that's that's one comment that i think a lot of people or a lot of clinicians can agree on you know it is fun to understand these things but when it comes down to what's going to get the patient better Mm -hmm. and that's really what matters you know what what gets results and and, um blood affecting blood sugar gets results regardless of how but on the other side of the spectrum is too. So almost with this insulin, uh, if you have too much insulin, obviously then we're kind of talking about hyperglycemia, high blood sugar. But the opposite side of the spectrum is true and that low blood sugar or hypoglycemia can also affect the brain and rates of dementia. Not as much. And I know we'll link a study that shows there was a 12-year um, perspective populated based study that saw both ends of the spectrum. Adults who had at least one hypoglycemic event had an increased risk of dementia where hyperglycemia had much higher chance, but you still had an increased chance if you had at least one episode of hypoglycemia. Oh, wow. Now, that's and that sounds, yeah, that sounds that's so scary. ridiculous. <laughs> I know. I know. Wow. This is, this is the thing too, though. I think when it comes to the long-term management of diabetes um, and when it comes to weighing life and weighing the stresses of these things, I can't, I don't think you should think about it. <laughs> I don't think it's scary um, that low blood sugar can also, it's like, I'm damned if I do damned if I don't and damned isn't a swear. So you don't have to bleep that out. <laughs> and, but it's one of those situations. Like I am literally have to be in the middle and most people feel like that's impossible. Yeah, you know, most diabetics feel like it's impossible. Yeah, it's really easy listening to this stuff or lo- reading this stuff and to get into that mindset of, well, I'm screwed anyways. Might as well live my life the way I want to live it and eat anything I want. And, you know, I'm just going to live with the consequences. But right. in reality, there is a lot, there is quite a bit of data out there that does show that long term stability does affect your outcome. So long term mm-hmm. stability does have. It has been shown to have a significant effect on your outcomes. So, you know, whether we're talking about brain or eyes or kidneys, if you're able to stabilize that blood sugar for a long period of time, you're going to be doing much better than you are, you know, if you didn't. And so, you know, trying to stabilize your blood sugar, you are going to get lows as a result. Mm -hmm. This kind of comes with the territory. But mm-hmm. you do the best you can and you keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and you're going to be a lot better off. Absolutely. I, I 
100% agree with that. It's some, one of those things that's like, you know, I don't know. What's at a greater risk? Is it the lack of control and the hyperglycemia that's going to give me the greatest risk? Or is it the opposite side of the spectrum for me? And I think having the overall control of just trying regardless is a way better attitude um, than just trying to ride the highs and lows. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people actually end up trying to fake their control of their diabetes. And that's been a problem. And I, I haven't looked this up, but I know it's, I'm sure it's been documented. I know I've at least seen PowerPoint slides from, you know, JDRF and juvenile diabetes research foundation conferences about, you know, okay, well, the, those who have an A1C of less than seven who are diabetic, what is their percent of them actually having high blood sugars? And, and what are the percent of them having low blood sugars? Because A1C is just an average. Mm -hmm. And so you can play the average game. Well, yeah. my average is right in the middle, but that's because half the time I'm up and half the time I'm down. So, yeah. But I'm good. I'm good. I'm like a, yeah, a 6.0. Yeah. That'd actually be amazing if somebody could somehow figure out. You would have to be doing a lot of yo-yoing to average six A1C and be getting just, you know, I can't even imagine what that would feel like, yo-yoing yeah. that much to average six by going super high then like super low and all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm no perfect. And I actually tried doing that. Not, not intentionally, but there was a period of time I was like, well, I mean, it'll lower my A1C, screw it, whatever, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but you definitely, that long-term control, like you said, and just the overall stability, I think, is where, like, our blood sugar is supposed to be. The less our blood sugar jumps up and down, the more stable we are, and therefore, the less inflammation we're going to have, the less other signals that our body is going to send out, that stress is happening, and therefore, your body can act more according to the other situations going on. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting when we talk to, and I say we as in patients, you know, diabetic patients, when we talk to, you know, endocrinologists or even their nurses or their, their educators, and they really, at least, at least the educators that were educating me were really discouraging, you know, low blood sugars. They would mm -hmm. rather me be high than have a low blood sugar. And mm -hmm. I think that comes from a concern of, well, I was a young kid and young kids don't always understand the gravity of the situation. So with a low blood sugar, you know, a kid may decide, well, I just want to keep playing and then push it too far and then you'll pass out. Mm -hmm. The low blood sugar is that immediate concern, at least in my mind for the most part is that immediate concern of, well, if you go too low, you'll pass out and then, you know, who knows what happens next. Mm -hmm. Whereas my mindset was I would much rather err towards the low end than the high end. And the reason why I went that way, even from a young age, was because I got to watch firsthand what uncontrolled diabetes, meaning high blood sugar, did to a person. Because my, mm. gra my grandpa had uncontrolled diabetes and ended up with severe health problems. Just, it just looked like a miserable way to live. He had, you know, multiple fingers missing. He wow. had multiple toes missing and then ended up wow. having one of his legs amputated and then the wow. other leg. Oh my God. Yeah. And then, you know, so he's in a wheelchair and I'm just like, I do not want to end up like that. Like, I don't want my body to break down on me. So if I get low, I can treat it with a juice box mm -hmm. and be fine. I'd much rather err towards that. And this is just me personally. I'd much rather err towards that than seeing myself in my grandpa's shoes. That's no. I remember the first time he told me that. And I don't think it's, it sounds awful to say, but I feel like, for you, Grady, you have such control of your diabetes and your blood sugar. And I feel like that was a big motivating factor for you. Definitely. Definitely. And it was almost like, and this is what sounds awful. You were as a diabetic, you were almost lucky to know somebody in, in such a way of opposite of contr not controlling your blood sugar growing mm -hmm. up. Like 
when that was going on with your grandpa, how old were you? Or rather, how far along into your diabetic journey were you? Like how well, many years? Honestly, that stuff was kind of going on when I was diagnosed. And wow. So, like he was still with us at that time, but he had already started losing limbs. I don't know if he had – he may have already had both of his legs amputated at that point. I can't remember for sure. But, I wow. mean, he, it was enough to where I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to deal with that anymore. And see, even like right away, like if that's or, already even has all happened yeah. while you just got diagnosed, it's like that – you know, you hear about that in a hospital. You know, mm -hmm. that's part of the diabetic education, you know, you need to do this or else you're going to lose everything, Yeah. you know, that's, and which is true. Um, but like, especially if you're a kid and diagnosed, which isn't true for all diabetics, um, you hear that and you're like, oh, whatever. Like I already know that just like, oh, smokers are like, I know smoking's bad, whatever. Yeah. Um, but when you literally are diagnosed and you see somebody who's that's who you love and that's in your yeah. family that's you know and that's going through that like man that must have been so hard but at the same time a blessing for you which again still sounds awful mm -hmm. but it's like dang yeah i mean it, it was like you said it was a blessing but it was like you said it was very hard to watch then after i was educated on it mm -hmm. like even just the, the little bit of education that i got in the hospital of how to mm -hmm. control your blood sugar and how to count carbs and how to dose mm -hmm. insulin and all that stuff. And then to then watch my grandfather have a hard time controlling his blood sugar, not, not because he couldn't, it was because he had then had it so long that he chose not to, I guess, educate himself because after we had learned how to control my diabetes, we were trying to help him out and, you know, tell him and educate him. But he had, he had his habits so ingrained and he was a very stubborn guy mm -hmm. that he just wasn't willing to change. Mm. How was his brain function? It, it was definitely suffering def, um, towards the end of his life. Mm. Mm. Man, no, that's, that's, that's pretty crazy. Um, and, and it's, it's almost like, I feel for the people who are diagnosed later in life, whether it be type one or type two, because mm -hmm. you do have those habits in life. You know, I remember when I was diagnosed at 13 years old, uh, I was going through puberty or I hadn't even started. I don't know. Maybe I was late bloomer. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I remember being in the hospital and thinking, you know, they're telling me all these things and I think the nurse asked like, how are you doing with all this? And I was like, well, I'm already changing. Like I'm going through puberty anyways. Like yeah. I might as well change one other way. Like, yeah. That was my thought in the hospital. Um, but you know, if you've been on this earth for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and now you have to change your habits, mm -hmm. like that's habit formation and changing is one of the hardest things to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I feel for those people because your brain, um, your heart, all these things are so important. Um, and even in the non-diabetic, as you talked about, you know, it's so important. Um, so to change those habits, um, it's almost even harder for the non-diabetic to change it. Cause it's like, well, yeah, you know, I'm like not really getting diabetic. by. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but you know, you, you get by, you get by until you don't. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that's why we talk about recognizing those symptoms, mm -hmm. um, of you know blood sugar regulation but also brain function when you start noticing brain function being affected so things like you know walking into a room and forgetting why you walked into a room that's not normal you should not you know that should not happen you need to figure out why that's happening especially if it's increasing in frequency mm. you know why is that happening or your ability to to focus or it's harder for you to learn new things you know, if those things are starting to pop up, we need to figure out why. And if blood sugar is a role in that, you really need to get on top of it right now. Mm. When was, to kind of wrap things up, this is a question that I wasn't expecting to ask you, Grady. When was the last time you walked in a room and you're like, why did, why am I here? Can you, hmm. can you remember? If I can't <laughs> no. remember, did that say something about my blood sugar or my brain? <laughs> Probably. Um, 
probably the last time I had a low blood sugar, honestly. Oh, yeah. It, it happens probably almost every time I have a low blood sugar because my brain just like, it's screaming for sugar so much that I can't think about anything else. Oh, sure. I, I think uh, since I just moved to Wisconsin, as I was unpacking and just, I'd be like, I'd walk part of one part of my apartment. I was like, what was I doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, pack, was, packing is understandable because you just got squirrel brain where you're just like, right. hey, I should do this. And then something else reminds you, oh, mm-hmm. I should do this. And then by the time mm-hmm. you get to it, you're like, I don't remember what I'm doing. Right. But uh, it was even just unpacking and, and getting settled. I would walk to a part of like, why am I here? <laughs> Who am I? Yeah. <laughs> what is life? Yeah. Anyways, maybe we'll end it with um, uh, what was, what is your blood sugar currently? What was your last reading? Oh, let me look at my pump because I have my sensor on now. Ah, well, congratulations. Oh, I'm doing pretty good. It's 108. Mm. Um, I'm 163 right now. And I was literally so good all day. Like I've had a long, long day. Yeah. Um, and, but I was so stressed about starting this recording at the right time. And I was running before this and my blood sugar was good during my run, but it was good after the run. But then I just started eating a bunch of food and I <laughs> ate, ate a bar and I ate like three fourths of a pound of ham. And yes, protein can affect your blood sugar which we'll talk about in the future mm-hmm. and uh, and just like i spiked to like 200 something and now i'm coming down to oh, like good. one 163 and i'm coming down now but um anyways i appreciate everyone who took the time to listen all the way through to this podcast or skipped ahead maybe you didn't like my voice or maybe you didn't like brady's <laughs> i don't know i don't know what you all do but uh this is the first recording not only that Brady and I are away, but this is the first recording after we release the first five episodes of the Diabetes podcast. And, you know, we're recording this um, now that the podcast is live. So it's been kind of cool to interact with some people and hear some feedback from, from friends and those who have listened to it and, and just random people so far. So thank you for all that who have already listened and all who are joining in the conversation. Uh, we appreciate you. So. That's all we have time for tonight. So catch us on the next episode of the Diabetes Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on the Die Buddies podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.